0: Welcome back to The Bookcase, another version, another week. I'm Charlie Gibson, the father of the Kate and Charlie pair.
1: And I am Kate, the daughter of the Kate and Charlie pair. I like the Kate and Charlie pair. We're also a dance duo. We do weddings, bar and bat mitzvahs.
0: Bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, we do the whole thing. (laughs) And uh, it's pretty awkward when we don't, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Anyway, we have a different show this week. So we thought we would take this half hour. Really, to talk about what we've learned in this podcast with a couple of other little features, books that we have particularly liked in the area of great literary romances. But I want to start, Kate, with saying I think we have learned so much. And what has impressed me, I think, more than anything, I so admire the craft of writing books, particularly, but I am so admiring of the craft that I am amazed at all the different approaches. That we have heard to writing a book.
1: Yeah, I feel as if, you know, we've heard from writers who write backwards. We've heard from writers who write forwards. We've heard from writers who write backwards and forwards at the same time. We've heard from writers who say, yes, no, it's important to work on multiple books. You know, when I'm stuck, I have something else to work on. We've heard from writers who say, no, that's impossible. One of the most interesting dichotomies, I think, is people who say the character just sort of pushed me out of the way and wrote the book themselves. And we've had a writer who said, I don't understand what that means. That is so foreign to me. That sounds so freeing if I could have that. And so I think if there's one thing that I take away and that maybe if there are listeners out there considering writing a book, there's a hopeful message in there, which is that there's no right way to
0: do it. Yep. 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 It goes actually back to the first writer we talked to way back in week two, when we talked to Niall Williams, who wrote a book that Katie and I both love, This Is Happiness. It's indelible in my mind. He talked about just having a first sentence, just having a first sentence, which he likened to putting through a thread through the head of a pin, And it just appears on the other side of the head of the pin. And he said, that's what my first sentence is. And then it's my job every day to pull that thread a little further and a little further and a little further through the needle. And by the time I get to the end of the thread, we have a book. And he doesn't know where the book is going. And the second thing, and I thought the question that you asked him was so illuminating. When you said, in this book, this is happiness, and he describes this wonderful town of Faha, fictitious town in Ireland. And you said, you know, you go on tangents in this book. You take me off in this direction or that direction or another direction that is really not central to the plot. How do you know how far you can take the reader without losing him? I've thought of that question over and over again through the weeks as we talk to writers who take you on digressions. And he said, that's the skill of the writer. You have to know how far you can stray from your central plot and bring the reader back and not lose them. I thought that was really interesting. And it's something that I now keep in mind every time I read a novel.
1: Well, and in some ways it comes full circle to the episode that we've recently released with Kaveh Akbar, who talked about, again, the centrifugal force ride that you sometimes, you know, are looking at the technique of an author and say, okay, I'll go with, I'll go there with you. You have, you have some of my patience. I'll take the trip with you. I'll pack my bag. You can take me on whatever tangent, but I just hope you can pull this off. And if the writer is good, you lose yourself in can they pull this off? You just lose that entirely, and you get lost in the joy of what they're doing. And then they say, meanwhile, back you know, back where the plot is happening, and you go, oh yeah, there's there's a plot. Yeah,
0: back at the <laughs> ranch. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And I love writers that can do that, and I love writers to whom I as a reader can entrust with my attention to do that and that I know I'll always be rewarded wherever they take me.
0: Kate, I'm glad you mentioned Kaveh Akbar and his new book, Martyr. We talked to him just a couple of weeks ago and the book is so good and is getting a lot of attention. But just in the New York Times book review the other day, I was reading the review of a book and the reviewer said that he had taught at one point a seminar for graduate fiction writers that was called The Poets' Prose. And he had all of his students just read books that had been written, novels that had been written by poets to emphasize just how important the conciseness of language needs to be, obviously, in poetry, but how poets take that and do it in novels. And he said he did it because he wanted students to learn how effective concision of language, meticulous use of details, and sensitivity to cadence can be. And I think that is a wonderful description of great writing in novels. And we have found it so often in novels that we have talked about in this podcast.
1: Stephen King wrote a terrific book on writing, which we've talked about before. But he talks about that, I think, in a concise way in, in that book, which is he says, kill your darlings. All of the writing that you think you really love, kill, kill, kill your darlings. It's all about streamlining. It's all about making that language as vital as possible. And I think that's a terrific way to do it because poets have to do it. Yep. yep. They have that scarcity of language that they have to deal with. And so it's an interesting way to weigh what you write.
0: And Akbar, I thought, was so interesting when he said, I've published two books of poetry. This is my first novel. And I have... About 10,000 words, I guess, in a book of poetry, and my novel is about 85,000 words. Does that mean that each word is worth one-eighth of the words that I use in the book of poetry? No, they're absolutely critical. You have to find that cadence. You have to find that detail. You have to find that ability to hold you in the beauty of language. And that's what great writing is. And as I say, I've learned a lot about that in this podcast. And the other thing that has struck me so markedly is how important are beginnings, especially in this age when we all have short attention spans and readers want to be engaged or think they need to be engaged right away if they're going to finish a novel. I think you and I are probably outliers in this area in that, We're so reluctant to put down a novel, even though we know it's a clunker uh, when we start. But so many writers have told us, you got to grab them right away. Now, Mitch Albom said, I've got 10 pages to get them, unlike a column that I used to write in the newspapers where I had to get them in the first sentence. Other writers have said they have less than that, that they have to get them in the first couple of pages. I don't know. But it does underline the importance of beginnings and intriguing the reader. And as John Irving said, I want to give them a character in the first couple of pages where they really begin to care about what's going to happen to that character.
1: And yet I think that is also a delicate balance too. I think you and I sometimes struggle with science fiction, right? Science fiction writers are very good at at just going, bam, you're in the world. You're in that character's perspective and here you are. Catch up with me. And yet there are some times where I can find that very frustrating and I can't catch up. And so I think it's a delicate balance, isn't it? Like There's a a science fiction writer who I think is wonderful at it, N.K. Jemisin, who brings you right into the world right away. But you have to be patient that for the first few pages, you're not going to know what's going on.
0: Well, and in some cases, it's more than a few pages. I mean, when we go back to Hernan Diaz, who wrote Trust, Mm. and that's four different books, you know, each section is distinct and unique. And yet at the beginning, you don't know how these parts are going to, when you finish the first part, you don't quite know where you are. He has to trust that he can hold you and he has to hold you with the skill of his prose. He does that in this book, Hell, he, he won the Pulitzer, but it's, <laughs> it's not easy if you're willing to take that tact about, I'm not going to really have the reader know where they are until they're well into the book. I have a greater burden, I think, to hold them. The Swimmers, I thought was another book where that was true, that wonderful book about Alzheimer's. And she brought you into the book so slowly. As I say, every, every, every book is different, but that's what makes the subject matter of this podcast to me so very interesting. When I used to fill in for Ted Koppel on Nightline, we spent probably half the time preparing the first 30 seconds of the show and worried about the last 29 and a half minutes later. You had to grab them with that first 30 seconds and make them think this show is worth the investment of a half an hour of my time. And we had to be able to hold them with that first 30 seconds so that they wouldn't go over and watch Johnny Carson's monologue. But it does go to the craft of writing. It does go to what we've learned from authors. And I have been very struck by how there are parallels to television. Anyway, what we've learned in a year and a half, and I have found it fascinating, and I hope people as they listen week by week do it as well, that they not only learn about books that we think are worthy, but they also pick up a lot of advice of how writers work. And one of the things we're going to do, this was Kate's husband's David idea. One of the things we're going to do is find a writer in residence, and we will talk to that writer as they work their way from inception to publication of a novel. What they struggle with as they go along, It's some of them take years doing it. Some of them could do a new novel every year. I don't know how they do, but they do. But we will check in with our writer-in-residence, and I think people will learn again more about the writing process when we do that.
1: Yeah, it's an insider's look into the writer's mind for better or for worse.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know, I think it'll only be for better. So that's our sort of reflections after well over a year and a half of talking to authors about how they work. It really has been a fascinating process. Kate recently said, if we're dead, if we're going to do a podcast like that, where the two of us just talk about our impressions... Uh, This is around Valentine's Day. Please, let's take a minute and talk about two of the great literary romances, two from each of us that we have loved over the years. So we'll do that when The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie continues.
1: Stay tuned. My father's going to pitch you Fifty Shades of Grey. No, I am not. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. Valentine's Day week that we honor, even though largely created by Hallmark. And since we had some time to talk this week, I challenged my father to come up with two love stories in literature, two of the greatest love stories in his consideration ever told. And I set him forth on that. We do not know what the other has picked. I have some idea, but we do not know what the other has picked.
0: I asked you when you first proposed this idea to me. How broadly the definition of love story can be, and you said, "Well, what do you mean, Dad?" And I said, "Well, how about a pig and a spider?" And you said, "Yeah, I guess so, because it's it's obviously not a physical love; it's not whatever, but the affection and the warmth and the interchange between Wilbur and Charlotte in Charlotte's Web makes that, I think, the greatest book that I've ever read. At least I love it so." And I think it's more than just about a pig and a spider. It's about relationships and about doing for each other, doing things for each other out of affection. And Charlotte so admires Wilbur and so he touches her so that she saves his life by her writing. And that to me is not only my favorite book that I've ever read, but so too is it, I think, a wonderful love story. Fair?
1: Yeah, I think absolutely. That book is about the best in us. It is about the way we take care of one another. And, you know, for me also, it's inseparable from your and mom's love story. So I don't know if I'd be here without Charlotte's Web. I mean, because it is part of your love story, and I'll let you tell that, but because it was part of your love story, you came to me when my kids were born and said, do I have your permission? Can you hold off on reading it to your kids? Can you not read it to your kids so I could do it? And we discussed when the right time is because the book starts out literally almost with the bang. I mean, the book starts out with you know the farmer going out with the gun, and so we talked about when the best age would be to do that. And of course, you know, when you read it to Charlie, when you get to the end. I couldn't sit in the room. I was a puddle. I was a mess. I was ridiculous. I was a sniveling fool because it's also about the passage of life and what we pass along when we are no longer around and how how our spirit is carried on. So there's so many messages in that book for me that just,
0: you know, it gets me. Katie says, if it weren't for that book, I might not be here. I courted her mother partially by reading that book to her. So maybe that had an effect in her saying yes when I finally asked her to marry me. I don't know. But it, it certainly touches me as a wonderful, wonderful love story. How about you?
1: Okay, so uh, my first one is going to be similar in the sense that I love Charlotte's Web because as it it broadens the definition of love. The Great Gatsby is inseparable from my love story, my husband, David Canada, who's our producer and our audio engineer and our editor had not read The Great Gatsby when we got together. Now, The Great Gatsby was introduced to me by one of the people that helped make me a reader, Dr. Jane Cole, who taught me AP English for two years in high school and is no longer with us. And she walked us through The Great Gatsby almost page by page. Now, I remember it as being just an incredible love story that's just beautiful from start to finish. And of course, when you go back and read as an adult, you realize how unbelievably sad it is. From the yeah. moment it opens, yeah. to, to close, it is just, it is sad. It's about unrequited longing. It is about the pain of love. And do we settle for love? And in some ways also, it's about inconsiderate people doing inconsiderate things to each other. It's like, it's the romantic version of Seinfeld. But I read it to my husband because I wanted him to... Experience the language of F. Scott Fitzgerald in that book. That's, you know, we were just talking about the importance of language. The Great Gatsby is. I'm so glad Dr. Cole walked us through that book page by page because no word is wasted. Yeah, it is such a beautiful book from start to finish, and I loved reading it to David. And to this day, I reread it two years ago. And to this day, it still breaks my heart. It is a heartbreaking book. It is transcendent.
0: We have asked many of our writers in our rapid fire questions, what book they go back and read again and again and again. And I know that fits in your category of books that you reread it all the time. And it is a wonderful book, but you're right. It is a very, in so many respects, a sad love story. I think the key to any love story really is the author has to know you know at the beginning who the people are going to be that are going to fall in love, and then you keep them apart for as many pages as you can. And then at the end, you bring them together. I mean, that to me is the definition of a love story. I, I, you know, I would, I've often thought that I probably would be happier if I had lived in the 19th century, because I think the greatest love story I ever written was Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen. I would put Jane Eyre. I would put Wuthering Heights in that category. But that's the easy answer. So I guess I have to take Darcy and and Pride and Prejudice out of the mix, although I would certainly put it that way. I loved 19th century novels when I was a student. But in modern day, and I know it's schmaltzy, Kate, and you're going to get on me, Dad, how did you fall for it? But I loved, loved Nicholas Sparks and The Notebook. And The Notebook is wonderful to me because it's a double love story. It's a couple falling in love when they're young, it is a couple that goes apart and then comes back together. And at the end, it's a different kind of love story because you realize that she is in the throes of Alzheimer's. He is sick and dying and he's professing how much he has loved her even in her diminished state. It's a, it's just a touching story. Nicholas Sparks knows how to touch the emotional cord and he certainly did for me. In the notebook.
1: Wow. Okay. I'm surprised. I did not see that one coming. I thought you were going to be more of a, a Pride and Prejudice. I mean, when we first talked about this, we talked about Pride and Prejudice as being I love that book because it's subtle, funny, feminism, strong hero with the you know, man being taken down a peg. So I love that book. But I can see that. You know, I think the notebook speaks to something that you and I have talked to, which is that marriages go through phases and the notebook does a nice job, I think, of breaking down how relationships change and evolve. And the person that you're married to 10 years after you get married isn't the same person you said I do to. There are aspects of them that are similar, but they're not the same person. You're not the same person. Every time you go back to a class reunion, you walk in and you sort of go, I can't wait to show everybody how much I've changed. And you forget that all of them have changed too. It's just, though, I think the notebook does speak well to that. But yes, I do think it's a little schmaltzy and and maybe you need a a little bit of a subscription to the Hallmark Channel, a little bit.
0: (laughs) Well, I fess up to being schmaltzy, you know. Those books, those two books really grabbed me. So I I sort of cheated there and gave you two modern books. But Love Story and The Notebook did it for me. How about you? What's your second?
1: Okay, I'm going to give Honorable Mention to Room with a View, which is just a beautiful book and which in some ways was a rite of passage to any Kent Placer who's listening. We all read it our sophomore year of high school and we all loved it. But I'm going to go with 84 Charing Cross Road, oh. which is an epistolary book. Yeah, It's a, an epistolary book between a woman named Helene Hemph and a bookstore owner in England, and they have a correspondence. She's asking for him to send her books. He sends her books. They connect over a love of books. It's not just a love story between the two of them as they realize how much they have in common, but it's also, I think, a love letter to books themselves Hmm. it's a love letter to reading Hmm. the way that helene hemp describes what she's looking for i don't know at one point she says she discusses heavy cream colored pages she describes leather you know book covers she just there's something about that book and the subsequent movie with anthony hopkins and anne bancroft which was brilliant brilliant casting and a very small role for judy dench if you haven't seen it I also just want to say one more thing just it's worth saying that there's a lot of different kinds of love stories out there just because we didn't mention it if Beale Street could talk Giovanni's room like water for chocolate Maurice love in the time of cholera you are out there somewhere in a love story and this is the week to go find it so I highly recommend it happy Valentine's Day sometimes love language is making a podcast with the people that you love
0: (laughs) yeah that's true that's true and I hope The affection that I have for my daughter, although it may not show through at times on this podcast, is very evident.
1: Well, you showed up.
0: (laughs) Appropriate, Kate, I think, to be talking about those kinds of books as we celebrate a few days ago, Valentine's Day. But it is a good time to think about people you love. I do want to, I want to add one thing. As people who pay attention to the credits and who have seen us on Good Morning America know that Good Morning America is a very big part of this podcast. And we mentioned Simone Swink and we mention Taylor Rhodes and Amanda McMaster and Sarah Russell every week. But all of the GMA family is important. And as you think about people, you listeners think about people you love at Valentine's Day. I want to put in a mention of Michael Strahan and his daughter, Isabella. If you saw their interview with Robin Roberts a few weeks ago, you know his 19-year-old daughter is suffering from brain cancer. And she is, as we speak right now, in the midst of her chemotherapy, which she's doing at Duke in North Carolina. And I know Michael's with her during that. And so as you listeners think about people that you care about, we All those people the Good Morning America are so important to us. They're so much a part of this podcast. And Michael and Isabella, those are tough times. And, you know, you think of football players. Michael was such a great football player for the Giants. And you think about them as tough guys and able to, but they're just like all of us. They go through heartbreak and Isabella's going through really tough times with a good attitude. And so we just want to, Katie and I want to just urge people to think about her. And if you say a word, say a word for her
1: mom used to say it all the time and i think it's very true you are only as happy as your unhappiest child and so there is something about when your child is in pain you are in pain and Michael uh, and Isabella are holding into this with a terrific attitude and they're holding on to each other and their family, but it's a reminder of how we should all hold on to our family and how blessed we are yep. on these days of love. Yep. Um, uh, if, if your loved ones are healthy, terrific, just tell everybody yeah. you love them today.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, and we're thinking about Michael and Isabella. and. We hope other folks will as well. So we do wish everybody, as of a few days ago, happy Valentine's Day. (laughs) And uh, we thank you for joining this podcast as we prattled on. So, Kate, um, you can introduce the people who make this podcast possible, including those from Good Morning America. And we'll sign off.
1: The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio in partnership with Good Morning America. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCam Productions. Asal Asanapur is our producer, Laura Mayer and Simone Swink are our executive producers. We give special thanks to Taylor Rhodes, Amanda McMaster and Sarah Russell of Good Morning America and Josh Cohan, Nania McLean, Vika Aronson and Brenda Salinas-Baker at ABC Audio.